from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Undersecretary of the Army will be the new Acting Secretary of the Navy. James McPherson will replace Thomas Modley. Modley resigned Tuesday because of remarks he made aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt about its former commanding officer. Military Times reports the Senate only confirmed McPherson as the Army's number two two weeks ago. Glenn Fine is out as acting inspector general at the Defense Department. President Trump removed him Tuesday. EPA Inspector General Sean O'Donnell will replace Fine as the acting Pentagon IG. The president's removal of Fine prevents him from leading the Council of IGs overseeing the coronavirus stimulus. The Washington Post reports Fine will stay on as the department's principal deputy inspector general. The Navy's remo uh, moved its entire recruiting effort to the virtual world. Commander Dave Hecht, a spokesperson for Chief of Naval Personnel John Knoll, says the Navy isn't cutting back its recruiting. USNI News reports the Navy's putting a two-week pause on bringing new recruits to Recruit Training Command Great Lakes. Department of Homeland Security has a new acquisition response team to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. The Defense Department's also talking about speed to acquisition in its response. Katrina McFarland's director at Science Applications International Corporation and former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. Katrina, thanks very much for coming on. How, what's your sense of how the virus response is changing acquisitions in the department? Well, good morning, Francis. Thanks for having me. And yes, there is a huge impact from this COVID-19 on our processes and our procedures and essentially on the timeliness and productivity. But boy, there we're doing a lot at the secretary's level and at the staff level to make adjustments. And it's very um, reassuring to see what they're doing. As I mentioned, all the branches are talking about speed and how quickly it, they can make things happen. This is an emphasis that started, I mean, before you were in the acquisitions role that you took up. What are you seeing as far as the places that the department is succeeding at driving speed without cutting corners? So much of the work that I'm seeing that really helps is related to the contracting procedures, how they're managing their workforce and working with industry. Um, they're really focused on, I would say, kind of four main thrusts areas, safety of the workforce, economic stability and productivity, maintaining the defense, uh, defense industrial base ecosystem and ensuring the spy chain and sustainability. And they're doing this through multiple different type of contractual um, efforts as well as uh, economic um, money that they're putting in to help uh, like the CARES Act, uh, like uh, some of the letters that uh, Secretary uh, Ellen Lord has put out and the service acquisition executives have put out to help people understand how to adjust for the additional costs for executing contracts, multiple, multiple levels of activity. Is that cash flow that's being pumped through the DIB maybe the most important thing? Because it strikes me that touches on at least two or maybe all four of those things that you mentioned a moment ago, Katrina? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Having both uh, now a foot in industry and in the government, we recognize, I think, as a nation that small business, innovative activities, venture capital, all the way up to large business, particularly those that have to be 
in a classified arena need help during these times because it is a totally different world in terms of cost and schedule and how do you manage that. What's the follow-on that you'd like to see to make sure that the money flows the way that it was intended to flow in that legislation, to make sure it gets to the places in the industrial base and in the supply chain that it needs to, to have the sustainment impact that it's supposed to? Well, one of the things that I think is important is this communication of all these activities to those small businesses and those uh, organizations that are just trying and learning how to work with the government. Um, in fact, just recently, uh, they put out a site to help people understand how to work with the government. And Stacey Cummings's activity in the joint task force that you mentioned on the opening is are areas that are very important for the activities that are out there to recognize availability of resources, understanding of the challenges, and how to help themselves and help uh, inform the government of their concerns. Some agencies, Katrina, are raising their micro-purchase thresholds in order to, be, to get things into the organizations faster. Is that something you think would make sense to DOD? Absolutely. They're pushing down just this week. Uh, they did some really interesting uh, activities. They pushed down other transaction authority, um, two levels. One is at the 100 million and below, the next one's at the 500 million and below, and only things that rise above that go up to uh, Ellen Lord's uh, area. And then you talk about micro-purchasing. The thresholds for micro-purchasing, I think, is a good deal all around, and I hope they retain that after this event, because I think they've been kind of stagnant in terms of really adjusting to what the costs for business and doing business are. So micro purchasing and all of the different uh, lower levels of speed they're accommodating and I think there will be some real lessons learned out of that that I hope are sustained. Well and that's where I wanted to go to finish up Katrina what are we learning th from this process that will apply after the pandemic's gone what should the next normal kind of look like as a result of what we're experiencing during this pandemic? Well, I'm hoping that we learn that we can do well with authorities being delegated down. I think the nation will start to recognize that our people are competent and skilled and can do this. We're not stupid. We're looking at what could happen if people abuse this system, and there's already activities out there doing that. I think one of the interesting things, uh, being a commissioner on the National Security Council's Commission for Artificial Intelligence, that I think a lot of artificial intelligence tools are going to be applied, which will overcome some of the cultural barriers that we've seen in the past. I think we're learning how to work productively without having to have necessarily a lot of travel and a lot of uh, other activities that uh, I think we'll learn from in terms of what we might be doing different in the future. Katrina, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, Francis. Take care. Be safe. Up next, saving money on shipbuilding. Straight ahead on Government Matters, cutting sustainment costs by moving them to the left. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Navy's budget plan for fiscal year 2021 includes $19.6 billion for shipbuilding. The Government Accountability Office finds if the Navy focuses on sustainment earlier in its shipbuilding process, it could save billions. Shelby Oakley's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at GAO. Shelby, thanks very much for coming on. Let's start by defining exactly what you looked at. What does sustainment mean in the context of a ship in the Navy's fleet? What we mean by that is once the fleet has the ship, it's passed on from the acquisition program to the fleet and they begin to take care of it. They begin to maintain it and run it and uh, provide their regular, regular and ongoing maintenance and sustainment. And that's the part of the process that we're really keyed in on for this report. All right, you're right in this report. Sustainment requirements should influence acquisition decisions that determine the sustainability of a ship class. I imagine should means that that's not exactly what you found. Yeah, we found some pretty significant deficiencies with the Navy's policies for um, establishing sustainment requirements. And in fact, these deficiencies were so significant that the requirements that are a result of them are just not useful to driving decisions about the design and execution of the ship. They are at such a high level and it's so um, uh, lack of significance that they're half the time not even used. For example, some of the requirements are set at um, a ship is considered available if it can just get underway. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it can meet its primary missions. Um, and so we made a number of recommendations related to making improvements to the policies that drive um, the development of these sustainment recommendations. What has to happen? Where does that need to move in the acquisition process or what has to happen at a different point in the acquisition process to address that, Shelby? You know, the main findings of our report is that are that sustainment is just not considered early enough in the acquisition process to drive meaningful change. The outcomes of this have been pretty significant. You know, there's been about $130 billion of operations and sustainment cost growth for the ships that we looked at in our review. And this is really the outcome of just sustainment not being considered earlier on in the process. And when we say early, we mean really from day one, because that's when key decisions about requirements for the shipbuilding programs and for their sustainment concepts are being developed and implemented um, by the shipbuilding programs. And without influence early on that is meaningful to drive change at that point, we're gonna continue to see the outcomes that we've seen in operations and sustainment where it's costing more and taking longer and the uh, sailors are having to put in more effort than expected to take care of these ships. All right, it's not all bad news. You write the Navy's begun making some changes to its acquisition process, such as developing sustainment program baselines and adding a sustainment oversight review. What will those two good things contribute to solving the problems that you found? Yeah, so the Navy, like you said, the Navy added what it calls a gate seven review, where it's calling it a sustainment review. Um, that is uh, a good step because it's gonna bring attention to operations and sustainment. But as somebody that we talked to throughout the course of our review mentioned, this is really a good time to sit back and admire problems that have already occurred. 
what we need is for the Navy to actually follow its guidance and policies and talk about sustainment, address those sustainment risks at gate one, two, three, four, where meaningful changes can actually be made. So you, the sustainment program base, oh, go ahead. No, you, please finish. The sustainment program baseline is kind of similar in vain. It's a really good concept that the Navy's piloting with some of its aviation programs at this point. We do hope that they expand this initiative to shipbuilding programs. But one area of concern we have about how they're going to implement that is they plan to use the sustainment program baseline as a governing tool during sustainment versus monitoring and using it as an accountability mechanism during the acquisition process. So that that would drive acquisition program managers to make decisions, smart decisions, to maintain those sustainment costs and maintain those baselines. You point out that Congress also isn't getting the information that it needs about sustainment issues. What should Congress get from the department? Yeah, so we've made a number of recommendations related to this. Um, one is related to the annual reporting that acquisition programs do um, on operations and sustainment costs. Um, it's very limited. And then also they're reporting those faulty requirements that I talked to you about to the Congress. So the Congress is getting a false sense of how available the, the fleet is um, for the sailors through the reporting that it's provided. In addition, um, you know, we think that the Congress really should consider putting in place a mechanism to uh, be provided information about those operations and sustainment cost estimates when they begin to increase, similar to the mechanism that they have uh, for acquisition cost increases, the Nunn-McCurdy mechanism. We think something similar is needed for the um, operations and sustainment costs so that Congress can step in early on and make decisions um, about those programs. Shelby, thanks very much for coming on and talking about your work. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Up next, doubling the research budget for artificial intelligence. Straight ahead on Government Matters, executing the pipeline of research and development projects. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Fiscal year 2021 budget request includes $2 billion for artificial intelligence research and development. That's about twice the AI research budget for this year. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense. He's co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Bob, thanks very much for joining me. You're proposing doubling AI research and development spending in the coming fiscal year and then doubling it again in the following year. What's the, the big need for the increase in funding for AI research, Bob? Well, first, it's great to be here, uh, uh, Francis. The commission sees global leadership in AI as being a national security imperative. And we judged that uh, we didn't think that our current level of spending would allow us to keep pace with our competitors in this field. The White House announced that it was going to double AI spending in FY22. What we recommend is that we double spending in FY21. 
that we do not wait till 22. Uh, and that would require, of course, reprogramming, which makes it more difficult. But we think it's very, very important to maintain pace in a very fast moving and revolutionary field. What's the most important reason? What are and what's the mo what are the most important areas uh, in which where that money should be directed, Bob? What do we need? Where do we need capacity now? Well, we judged that there were six areas that were very very critical, and those were uh, novel machine learning directions, uh, testing, evaluation verification and validation of AI system, robust machine learning, complex multi-agent scenarios, and AI for modeling, simulation, and design, and then advanced scene understanding. These were the six areas where our experts in AI really believe would lead to the next big wave of applications of economic and national security importance. And so those were the six areas that we called out. Obviously the spending would happen under the auspices of the Department of Defense. Would the work, should the research and development also happen internally or should it be done in conjunction with partners in either industry or academia or maybe both? Well, let me clarify one thing. Uh, the Department of Defense spends uh, in 21 budget uh, DOD requested 800 million in R&D, AI R&D, and another $1.7 billion in AI-enabled autonomy in all of its form. That did not increase, that did not include the spending that was included in the labs for the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, and it didn't include all of the money that DARPA has earmarked for pursuing what they refer to as third wave R&D. We focused on non-defense R&D in FY21 because we feel it's a national imperative for us to keep the general R&D base up. We're going to watch very closely the spending in DOD and then make a recommendation later in the year on whether or not we believe that that is sufficient. So what we really focused on Francis this year was non-defense AI R&D, which would leave the, I mean, would, excuse me, would raise the national base uh, for R&D spending. What is driving progress in artificial intelligence today, Bob? Is it something that's happening in technology? Is it something that's happening scientifically or some other uh, issue? Well, the first wave of AI, according to DARPA, was what they referred to as handcrafted systems. This required an expert to explicate exactly the task that needed to be done, and then a computer science expert to change that explanation into a program. It was very, very laborious and very, very slow. There were some really high points, but it wasn't something that would allow us to scale necessarily. The current wave of AI is being driven by what DARPA refers to as statistical learning. All of the different types of machine learning where you all you have to do is show the task to the computer and the computer writes the program to execute the task. 
that democratized AI and is driving this enormous wave of AI right now. The six areas that I talked about just before this question are the areas where the commissioners with deep, deep understanding believe that the next kind of wave of applications and improvements are going to occur. So that's where we believe uh, it should go. And we also think that uh, we also, go no, ahead, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, please finish your thought, Bob. Well, I also wanna make sure that everyone understands that we said, again, this is a national problem. So we recommended money go to NASA, recommended money go to the NIH, the National Institute of Health, to the National Institute of Standards and uh, uh, 50 million there, uh, to NASA, and then also to expand fellowships and scholarship programs managed by DOD, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, uh, NASA, and the National Science Foundation. So we're, we're re recommending, Francis, is a broad-based national R&D effort. Bob, thanks very much for coming on. I know this is a topic you've been on for a long time. Great leader on it, and I appreciate your time. It's great to be here, and I hope you and yours and all of the listeners are safe in this crisis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. The Navy League and Government Matters are partnering on a virtual edition of the largest maritime expo in the United States. The Navy League canceled Sea Airspace 2020 in person last month after Maryland prohibited gatherings of more than 250 people in response to the pandemic. Every day next week, we'll air a one-hour special Sea Airspace 2020 virtual edition from 1 to 2 p.m. right here on WJLA 24-7 News. If you're watching this program on the American Forces Network or on the web outside of Metro D.C., you can register for the free webinar version of each program on FedInsider.com. You'll hear from Assistant Secretary of the Navy for RDNA, James Gertz, Rear Admiral Mark Busby, Admiral Carl Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, and a lot more. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.